Very good. Well, God bless and welcome to another episode of Family Discussion. My name is Marcus Ortega, and as always, I am joined by the inimitable Lisa Spencer. Lisa, how are you doing today? Inimitable. Does that mean smart? Because I'm no, not, if that, uh, well, if yes. does, I'm not feeling very inimitable right now because I'm going to have is, to look that up, Marcos. It is somebody who defies imitation and who is matchless. So Ooh, okay. that is Lisa Spencer. That is who we have with us today. So Lisa, uh, we had a great conversation last week about uh, God's initial design for gender and sexuality. We looked at Genesis 1 and 2. Um, but as you well know, and as I well know, there are many, many people who are having conversations about the implications of God's design in today's current, really uh, the, the current I don't want to say mess, but the current mess of sexuality and gender in our cultural context. And uh, one of the places where this is happening is in the PCA, which is not my home, but it is certainly your home. Lisa, how long have you been in the PCA? Um, I uh, came into the PCA in fall of 2012, uh, becoming a member uh, at my first PCA church in June of 2013. And as, you know, someone who takes ecclesiology pretty serious, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's not, I'm not content to just sit on the, you know, sit on the pews with the basics. Like, I want to know what, <laughs> it, and, and I'll be honest, it is, it, it, my, you know, my entrance into the PCA was initially drawn. It, ecclesiology is what initially drew me to the PCA. Um, and then, you know, and that, that was at a time when I was really wrestling with dispensationalism, you know, being at Dallas Seminary and um, being a committed dispensationalist and starting to find holes. And so, you know, as, as I uh, went through the program at DTS, my theology was becoming more reformed, but I was particularly at a place where I, I was really needing some solid just just some solid church um and so i was drawn to the pca and i and there's so many um there's so many things that i love about it and maybe that's a for another episode for another day um mm. but uh but yeah i've been um I, i've been quite pleased that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, we have similar stories in this. I came out of dispensational background as well, and um, was also ecclesiology was one of the reasons I was also drawn to Presbyterianism. I ended up in your sister denomination, the EPC, um, and we we had a few years ago some conversation around human sexuality and gender. We put out a 67-page pastoral paper, pastoral letter on this uh, during my first GA. Um, we went and the, uh, the General Assembly voted unanimously to accept it, which kind of re-established uh, our commitment to a traditional understanding of, of gender and sexuality. Um, and the PCA did something similar in the last GA. And to help us have this conversation around uh, sexuality and gender in the PCA, the current debates, the current, situ um, you know, the current discussions that are happening there. Lisa, you've invited a couple guests to join us. So I don't want to keep waiting any longer. Lisa, introduce our guests. For yes, today. because yes, they're sitting here patiently uh, waiting for us. And so um, they are also, uh, well, technically they're members of their presiding presbyteries. Um, 
but they are in the PCA. And so the first person I'm going to introduce is Daniel Wells. And he is a pastor at Church of the Redeemer in Cortland, New York. And I actually had the privilege of uh, speaking at their first women's conference um, two, two and a half years ago, almost three years ago, because I had just gotten married. Yeah, it was yeah two years ago. You just gotten married. So we you went from Lisa Robinson a month before to Lisa Spencer a month later. Yeah. Change up. I think we had to change our flyers and change your name on yeah. the flyer <laughs> after you got married. So it's mean, not like you didn't know. So thanks um, a lot. <laughs> it was, but it was a really great time uh, being in, there in upstate mm -hmm. New York. Um, and really just a neat group of ladies. Um, so I, yeah, I would love to come back, but uh, that's not a self-invite, by the way, because I think that's tacky. But I'm just saying, I just really, I, I just really enjoyed, uh, really enjoyed my time there. So uh, welcome uh, to this episode of Family Discussion. And our second guest, uh, actually, I know pretty well because um, not only is he in the PCA, but he is also at... Uh, Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia, where I and my husband are members. Um, and not only that, he is also, we are also in the same small group. So he adds a lot of zest to our group. Um, uh -oh. <laughs> so Jason Little, um, who is also an RUF coordinator. Um, and so Jason, what areas, what areas do you cover for RUF? I oversee uh, the campuses in Virginia and the eastern two-thirds of North Carolina. So it's about 17 schools. Okay. And both of these guys have been in the PCA for a while. No, Jason has formerly pastored in uh, Chicago and other places. And how long have you been in the PCA? How long have you been a, a minister in the PCA, Jason? I was ordained in 2000. Uh, okay. but I started working for RUF back in 94 before I went to seminary as an intern. So it's been quite a while. Okay. And Daniel, how long have you been in the PCA and ordained? So I'm a kind of a newbie. I was ordained. Oh, I, I transferred into the PCA back in 2017. I came in from the ARP denomination where I was ordained and did church planting for a few years. Uh, I was actually a lifelong member of the ARP uh, sister denomination, but I was involved with RUF and I was in college and, RUF is probably the reason why I'm in ministry today. So uh, I have a lot of familiarity with the PCA even before I jumped aboard a few years ago. All right, great. So uh, as Marcos mentioned, um, our denomination um, put out a report. It was commissioned from the, um, from the interim committee um, that was formed from, in, from the 2019 General Assembly, um, there was an, inter, uh, it, I, I know the acronyms, AIC, an interim committee for on human sexuality uh, comprised of seven men, some familiar names that our listeners probably are familiar with, Brian <laughs> Chappell, Tim Keller, um, Kevin DeYoung, Jim Pachta, and I'm forgetting the others. Not that they are not, un, not, they are important as well, but, you know, uh, there are some familiar, familiarity there um, with the um, publishers, the, the producers of the report. And so these guys got together and produced a report on human sexuality. 
Um, and it was at a time, and let me, let me just sort of back up a minute because this is something that I have um, indicated in previous episodes in, you know, in terms of our cultural context. And as we all know, there is, there's just been a pretty massive shift in our culture with respect to human sexuality, right? A anywhere from the image of God to marriage, to, um, you know, what is marriage, um, to same-sex attraction, homosexuality. So we have, so, so this report is commissioned against the backdrop of these larger cultural issues. Um, and probably, and I know these guys could speak a little bit better to it, but probably what um, motivated the, um, the commissioning of the report. Um, our church actually had the privilege of using the report at, for a Sunday school class. And so in the report, there are 12 statements and we spent um, e you know, each Sunday going through one of the statements. Jason was one of the three teachers. Um, and so he te he's such a fabulous teacher. Thank you, Jason, for your labors. Um, but it was, I wish the classes were longer because there was just so much there um, to discuss. And so our Sunday school, uh, we've kind of restructured a little bit after COVID, went to two services. Our Sunday school hour is about 45 minutes, not nearly enough time to tackle each of these topics. Um, and so I want to uh, just kind of open it up. But first, I want to just for the sake of our listeners who are not in the PCA and are not familiar with the report, I just want to read the headers of the 12 statements so you get an idea of what this report covers. Um, marriage, image of God, original sin, desire, concupiscence. Yeah, you can imagine the three teachers really battled uh, themselves to really jump on who was going to teach that one. Uh, temptation, sanctification, impeccability of Christ, language, friendship, and repentance and hope. Um, I'm really glad. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful to the leadership, uh, CTK, that's you know, saw fit to use this report um, to dive into these issues. So gentlemen, uh, just, I'm just gonna open it up to you and, you know, talk to me about, tell us why you felt that this report was really important in just not just in terms of the, the broader cultural issues, but because of how the church really needs to think through these issues. Go for it, Jason. You're the you're the more veteran PCA or among us. Well, Why don't you lead it off? I mean, I, when, when the overtures requesting the report came forward, I, I, I'll admit I had a fair bit of fear and trepidation. How well we, as a, a church family, you know, our little slice of God's family in the PCA could have this discussion or if it would just devolve into squabbling. So there was, I, that was my initial kind of emotional response. Like, oh, this is going to be like Thanksgiving dinner with the in-laws you don't get along with. Um, but I was encouraged that the report came together, was able to, I think, move us forward with a more unified voice and a little bit more trust. Um, there was a broad 
spectrum as broad as you can get within the the confines of the PCA of theological and cultural stances in the people who put it together, which was encouraging. It was overwhelmingly adopted. Pastorally, the reason why I'm encouraged we did the report is because I think silence uh, betrays nervousness that scripture is relevant to these issues. And so I think saying something um, was just a good witness to the relevance of God's word to real life stuff, um, which is somebody who works with college students to know that when you talk about sexuality, that's not a different world from where the Bible lives, that those two things can be integrated in a way that is uh, joy-filled, life-giving, even when it's hard, so. Daniel? Um, can y'all hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, if you hear my kids cracking their heads on the ice rink in the background, uh, I'll maybe need to go. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, I, I think Jason really hit on the head. You know, I think uh, the broader cultural context for not just the PCA, but most kind of evangelical denominations is really 2015 post the Obergefell SCOTUS decision. I feel like just even like subconsciously in our churches and denominations, there's like a shift and probably um, most of us kind of a little more fear arose in our hearts. Like what's the future? Uh, uh, are we going to lose um, civil protections and uh you know, tax status of churches and things like that. I just think because after 2015, I think, and then the 2016 election and all these things, I think that really just changed just the subconscious kind of psyche of a lot of evangelical Christians and churches for good and for ill. I mean, it's probably good and bad in different ways. Um, so I do think that when in the PCA, when um, the Revoice Conference started and this and that, and I'm, I'm not uh, defending or criticizing the Revoice Conference, um, I think when that was held at the PCA Church in 2018, I think that just really was like a big red siren for a lot of, for a number of folks. And so when we got to the 2019 GA, you know, we were asked to pass this Nashville statement. Um, we were asked to put together this committee. Um, I just think that, um, again, you can, you know, say this is good or bad. I'm not giving that answer right now, but I think this, you know, people get fearful and people get uh, worried and they wonder, are we going to compromise? Like the culture's compromise. And so I think there's, there's that temptation, like we have to say something. I think that can be a good thing to feel. Mm -hmm. um, but also that can go in some bad routes too. We have to say something. And you're kind of um, shouting something every year from GA to the culture, even though the culture's probably not listening much to what our GA says or does, just to be honest. Like, I don't think Fox News or CNN or MSC really care about what the GA does. I'm just going to put it out there. So right. um but uh, yeah, I, I just think um, I think that's the broader context, and um, and then some more narrow narrow context in the PCA led to kind of those things at the, our 2019 General Assembly. And I agree with Jason. Um, I thought they did the, they did a great job putting together, putting together the committee. I thought it was a really great report. Uh, I'm encouraged that your church, uh, Lisa and Jason, is going through it. I kind of after I heard that from you guys, I feel like I want to have my church go through it now. But I think it's a really helpful theologically rich, but pastoral document. And, um, and sometimes in the PCA, we can be very theologically rich, but not always, we don't hit the pastoral note very well. Sometimes, um, we can be very bookish and headish, right. Um, and not always pastoral, but I think this committee report 
tried to be pastoral and did a pretty good job with that. So I think it is a good report. So I agree with Jason on that. Just do it in six weeks, not 12, Daniel. <laughs> okay, oh sounds gosh. good. We needed 24 weeks. What are you talking about? <laughs> no. Yeah, some of those, some, some of the um, some of the topics were a little dicey. Um, and so my my hat's off to the the teachers given the 45 minute uh, framework um, of really facilitating both teaching and um, you know having responses and, and, and questions and whatnot. Uh, but I do want to touch on something that Daniel said that I think is important um, and something that I've observed as well in terms of not just what is going on within the denomination with respect to Revoice, but when you look at the broader cultural context, right, of, you know, of, of finding uh, same-sex attraction, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, more acceptable you know i um i don't think you can watch a television episode now without it you know just just the normalization right of those you know of those issues um and so i do think that when we're looking at the broader cultural context there is there's a concern there's a fear oh we can't um, you know, we can't go this route because mainline denominations have gone this route in terms of affirming. Um, but then you have um, um, not just the broader cultural context, but then within evangelicalism itself, or those who have identified as evangelicals, evangelical churches that are becoming, uh, to some degree or the other, more accepting more affirming. You have, you know, so-called celebrity Christians who now, you know, come out and say, you know what, I don't think that there's anything wrong um, with this. And so, you know, just given the backdrop of the culture and how, you know, we're even treating the image of God, you know, who is a person, um, there's this detachment of what I feel internally, what I feel psychologically can be divorced from my biological reality. Um, and so we have just that being more normalized in the culture. I do think, I'm, I'm glad that, um, you know, that this report was commissioned to help us, um, you know, uh, wrestle with these issues. And I know the class that was at our church was for that reason, you know, even though 45 minutes on each statement was not enough, but I think it gave a framework for how we think about, because one thing that I really liked, and, and, and let me tell you, people were all over the place, right? And, and actually that's good because you can, you know, that's how you start bringing people together, right? I don't think there's anything worse than, you know, than silence um, and just say, well, that's, that's the culture out there, but here we're just not gonna deal with it. But then what do you do when, you know, people are becoming more, um, you know, there are Christians that are becoming more soft and attracted to, you know, some of, the, some of these arguments that are floating around. What do you do with that person who has, you know, and is struggling with same-sex attraction? You know, what do you do with the, you know, you're, you have uh, people in our church who have family members who have um, same-sex weddings? And so the question of, you know, do, 
you know, people are genuinely wrestling with people, you know, being able to attend an event with people they know and love, but also wanting to honor the Lord. And people are really have to really wrestle with that, right? Sometimes I think we can just make it so um, sterile and, you know, cut and dry and say, well, you know, you just don't go. It's like, well, wait a minute, that's, that's my daughter, or that's, you know, that's my niece, you know, that's getting, you know, that's getting married. I love these people. So, um, you know, so it, it, I'm glad that it was opened up so that we can really wrestle with, um, you know, with, with these issues, but we cannot let, we just can't let fear um, drive us. So, um, so with that, where do you see, um, like I said, it's good that we use this, um, this statement. Where, where do you all kind of see this going? You know, I know that there's been some talk, which I hate. I hate the talk of splits, of, you know, going in different directions. I really want to see people continue, and that includes... Um, you know, that includes the officers of, P of the PCA, you know, really wrestle with this and say, you know what, we're, we're going to stick with this. Um, we're going to stick with biblical fidelity as well as Pat being, you know, having pastoral concerns. Um, so where do you all, where, where do you all see this, you know, direction or how do you think that this report addition to just I don't know, um, you know, having classes, you know, where this could be helpful in moving forward. You want me to, you want us to forecast the future of the PCA, Lisa? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're cessationists. We don't believe in prophecy. So you got to <laughs> reframe the I question. Know. Well, I'm, I'm just, I guess as more... a mid-level bureaucrat who works for a denominational agency <laughs> or uh, that's the wrong word. It's not an agency. Uh, ministry. Okay, um, there we go. I, I want to maintain, I'm hopeful, and I don't want to give in to cynicism about the church. I think one of the things that encouraged me about the words of the report um, and the way it was presented in video format at the General Assembly with Kevin DeYoung and Tim Keller, who are not always culturally aligned um, mm -hmm. in their stance, um, it just, it felt very like warm and conciliatory and like how you want to see the church loving on one another. But as I have watched the report trickle out, mostly amongst officers. I mean, we had the Sunday school class at our church, but I don't know how many people have actually read this report in the PCA. Um, so I think it's mostly a useful document for officers and really committed church people like you, Lisa, um, you know, my daughter read it because she came to Sunday school class and she had heard me read it up front. Um, so, and the other teachers. Anyway, I, it, it hasn't alleviated the fear and mistrust in the way that I'd hoped. I think it, like any document or rule, you know, it can be wielded to be a catalyst for fear um, and distrust. And so in that regard, I think it, it's, it's proved that. I think that the future of the PCA is bound up in our ability as Presbyteries to move towards one another relationally and have real relationships instead of function like a church court. 
a document in a church court is just going to create arguments. Um, arguments. If we are friends and we love and care about each other and we're co-belligerents for the kingdom of God, um, then I think we'll experience unity and joy, hope. We'll be crucified together. All those things as we hope for glory. Yeah. And, and Daniel, before you say that, I just want to want to ping off that because one of the things that I find <clears throat> unfortunate in the, um, you know, just sort of where we are, not, not just within the denomination, but again, how the broader culture is, you know, how we're responding to the broader culture is that, you know, we want people to be honest with their struggles, right? Um, and I would say even for those who are ordained, which has been a particular prickly point um, in, our, in our denomination, right? So when someone says, I am same-sex attracted, if we're letting fear drive that, the, the tendency is inter to interpret that as, oh, you are finding that desire normal. You are finding that desire um, acceptable, but just not acting on it, or, or what's known as side B, right? Or is the person who is saying, I am same-sex attracted, saying, this is something that I wrestle with, but I acknowledge that it's, it's sin, but it's still part of my life in terms of my sanctification, in terms of those things that I have to mortify. And one of the, my wishes is that when we hear this language being, uh, being put out to interpret charitably of where someone is coming from. Somebody, you know, makes a claim that they are same-sex attracted, right? And one of the things I like about the report is that, you know, we kind of get hung up on, you know, should you identify as a gay Christian? Well, no, I don't think you should, but there's also some, um, you know, some language in there about ministering to outsiders, ministering to those who do, you know, who do have that particular orientation. And sometimes that language can be helpful. Um, and particularly when you're dealing with people who do not know Christ, right? So my hope is that we can just be more charitable in our interpretations when we're allowing people to be honest about about their struggles. So that's that's one thing that I, I would I would have hoped that this report would have produced. Unfortunately, sometimes, especially on social media, I don't see that so much. But I'm holding out hope that you know the brothers could come together and have a better understanding of where people are coming from and less reaction um, out of fear. So Daniel, sorry, I just wanted to insert that while, you know, while Jason was uh, just based yeah. on what Jason said. Those are some really good words. So since I'm not a bureaucrat, I'm going to be honest with you guys. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. No, um, no, I think, I, well, think I, Jason, uh, <laughs> no, I think, I think Jason, uh, I think Jason's right. Um, I, th I do think the future is bright for the PCA. I mean, um, one thing I love about the PCA these last four and a half years is just, there's just so many gifted men and women. Uh, and I include Lisa as one of those gifted women in the PCA. Um, not just, okay, ordained men, but we have um, these kind of female theologians that, you know, write books and are co-authors in books that we publish. And that's, it's just, it's just a blessing. And um, again, I, I sing the praises of RUF all the time. So I'm just, 
glad to be on this on this uh, Zoom chat with Jason here. Um, I think there's so many things that PCA offers to not just the American evangelical church world, but hopefully beyond our borders. Um, but, uh, you know, I do think um, some splits are going to happen at some point. I mean, the last few years have been a f- uh, churches here and there have split off. And instead of joining another, you know, Nay Park or, you know, another conservative reform Presbyterian denomination, they started their own new denomination. That's what we need, another new micro Presbyterian denomination, right? Uh, but if, if Presbyterians are good at anything, we're good at splitting and starting our own little micro denomination because we think we have the monopoly in real estate on truth, right? Um, so I, I, I'm sure more that's going to happen as uh, we debate these two overtures um, that were also came from this last GA along with the um, study report. Um, I actually do think, I, I wish, this is what I would have wished as a commissioner at our GA, I wish that we just would have unified around the study reports. I thought it was really good. And we basically had near unanimous votes to affirm it. There was no de- really little to no debate about it. Um, but we had debate about these two related overtures that we want to put the BCO. And, um, and you know, I, I remember a couple of years ago at this, um, it was a conference put on by the Gospel Reformation Network. I didn't go to the conference, but I listened to this talk by, that Legan Duncan gave. Legan Duncan, um, I really highly respect him, look up to him. He's the chancellor of my seminary, RTS. And he said, he said two things are interesting. He said, guys, the PCA is way more united on, on issues of sexuality and same-sex attraction, all these things. We are way more united about this than we ever were about, like, the federal vision or, like, name any other, like, remotely controversial issue in the last 20, 25 years of the PCA. He's like, we are, like, way more unified on these issues right here. But for some reason, you know, the implications, but for some reason, we think we're not unified. And I think... I think we just, we, the church has imitated, not just PCA, but the whole, you know, American evangelical, evangelical church. We've imitated all the bad from cable news networks and, you know, uh, kind of outrage porn is what they call it, right? Just We, we, we just want to be outraged by the other people. We have these shouting matches. And as you say, Lisa, social media plays a huge part in it. Um, so even though I think we're a lot more unified, like theologically and doctrinally, um, for some reason... Uh, we've, we're kind of psyching ourselves out thinking, no, we're not unified. There are some bad, you know, li- secret liberals here that really just don't believe in basic biblical truth. Um, and I don't think you're gonna be able to change those minds. Maybe it's over hospitality and food and drink. That's probably how you change minds. If you have those, you know, loving conversations. Um, but yeah, but I think um, certain minds are already made up. And I think a few, just like in the last several years, a uh, few have left. I think a few more, maybe more than a few are going to leave. But um, overall, I think the PCA will hopefully remain a healthy, um, gospel-centered, winsomely reformed denomination for many, many, many years to come. Yeah. Well, I, you know, Daniel, you bring up a couple of these things that have happened. And I want to ask as an outsider if you could, the two of you, maybe the three of you, I mean, all, all of you have a better picture of this than I do. The The difference between the report that was sent out and these ascending overtures that really, in from an outsider's perspective, way outshined the report. I mean, all of the fire, all of the fighting was about these overtures. Um why was there such a seeming disconnect between the overtures and the report? Like where, 
where did that disconnect come from? Because it did seem initially, hey, PCA is on board. They're all going to do it. They, they seem to agree. And then it exploded. And from an outside seat, we're going, what the heck just happened in the PCA? So I wonder if you could explain why was there such a dissonance between the initial report and those overtures that came through? Go ahead, Jason. <laughs> well, I, I think the, the hot button issue is coordination of officers and church staff and their relationship to sexual struggle. Um, and the, the necessary biblical requirement that church leaders, whether they be ordained or not ordained, um, be exemplars of faith and faithfulness. And if you have a leader who struggles in this particular area, and that, I think the fear there is that um, elders, deacons, pastors, lay leaders, if, if they're upfront about struggling with lust for somebody of the same gender, um, that that will create space for other Christians to normalize that behavior and not struggle against it. Um, so I think that's why those things get blown up. I think that the heat there is I might be very scrupulous and careful about the verbiage I use in talking about my heart, my struggle, my actions, my sin. Um, but my friends, my neighbors, the newspaper, they're not going to be right. Like I can say all the right words. Like, I'm a same-sex attracted Christian, but if I get written up in the local newspaper, they're going to say Jason, the gay pastor, right? And so, like, therefore, it's it ruins the the reputation of the church for me to admit publicly that I'm struggling with that because of how it's going to be splashed on a blog or a newspaper or whatever. So I, I do think that's where a lot of the angst comes. Yeah. And before, yeah, before Dan, I'm sorry, like I cut you. I hate to cut you off, Daniel. <laughs> I just wanted to say this while I was hey, thinking I'm, about I'm, it. I'm used to it. I'm used to it. <laughs> so go, go ahead. You know, oh when I look at just, just something, and, and this is just a, you know, a, it, it's almost an aside. Um, so the two overtures that are now being voted on by the Presbyteries that have to get two thirds of of the votes uh, in order to go and get passed by the General Assembly, right, um, next year, is it, it really, it does have to do with, um, you know, fit for office, ordination. Um, I think, I find it unfortunate that there are, so those who are not in favor of changing the book of church order, changing the language of the book church order, what they're not saying is we don't want to change the book of church order so that we can give allowance for ordained ministers to be same-sex attracted. I, I haven't, based on everything that I've read and that I've heard, nobody's saying that. What I hear people saying is, we don't want to put a chokehold on the book of church order with contemporary language that is ultimately going to impose some legalistic standards. Like we have scripture, we have the Westminster standards. So we don't really need to change. We have everything that we need to be in compliance with that foundation 
And if you impose any more on the book of church order, you're then, and particularly with how, you know, with contemporary language, well, then you're, you're creating something else. That's where I, where I hear the opposition, what I hear the opposition saying. And again, I wish that the brothers could be just a little bit more charitable in that interpretation and not reading it as, oh, you are capitulating to, to a same-sex attracted agenda. I don't see that, I don't see that happening. So anyways, yeah, I just wanted to yeah. insert that because- the, sex, um, the sexual ethic of the PCA is not in jeopardy. It hasn't changed. Right. Yep, um, that's right. It, what, whatever your opinion on the overtures are, that's not at stake. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I won't say anymore. Okay. Yeah. And, um, just a couple little facts, just for those who are listeners, maybe they're just not <laughs> caught up on all the, all the, well, I think are probably boring, uh, minutia of PCA politics. Uh, people have probably doing way better things with their time, thankfully, um, they're keeping up with this stuff, but, um, just a few uh, little factoids um, of the seven people that were on that ad interim committee on human sexuality that produced that wonderful report we talked about. Um, three of them have come out publicly saying they don't, they're not fans of these overtures. And then a fourth one privately um, has said, yeah, this, these overtures seem to kind of undermine what we were trying to do in the report where the report was saying, we don't want to be language police. Yeah. We want to be cautious and use wisdom, biblical wisdom about language, but, we want to be language police or these overtures seem to be the kind of language police, right? Like, kind of like a gotcha overture. Um, and so to me, it's kind of interesting that you have a number of the members on this committee that are just not big fans of these overtures. Um, and then, you know, Lisa, you talked about how people interpret the overtures. Um, I was a philosophy major in college. And so clarity is a big deal for me. And um, I, I get really my, one of my pet peeves is if there's a section of our BCO that lacks clarity, I get really frustrated. Uh, I'm a chairman of our shepherding committee in our presbytery. And sometimes we look at the BCO if a certain section just lacks clarity. I'm just like, who wrote this? Like we need, don't make, don't make it open-ended where you leave it up to us in our own whims today on what we want to do with this, like make it clear. And um, one, one of these overtures, I think it was overture 23. When we were debating this on the floor at GA, one person, uh, one elder stood up and said he was going to vote for this because he says, we don't want same sex attracted pastors in our denominations. So he read that overture saying this will ban anyone to being ordained the PCA, even if they experience or struggle with same sex attraction. But then Scott Barber, the teaching elder, who was a chair of our overtures committee, who was upfront explaining it, he said, actually, no, this overture would not, you know, disbar people who just experience same sex he had a very winsome actually very positive actually pretty good view like if if the overture was written as clearly as he explained it i probably would have voted in favor of it so even on the floor of the general assemblies we were voting and debating there was like a lack of clarity as to what exactly this says um and so i do think that lack of clarity and just i still think they're i think one reason they're not very well written is because those overtures came to the GA in one form and then the overtures committee like went through like three or four revisions and changed the language. And they, you know, we were like, we were like up late, late Thursday night, like 11 o'clock debating this stuff. And so 
I kind of think we didn't put the best, most clear language in these overtures. Um, and so I know a lot of folks also just don't like the overtures because they're just not very clear. And if you're going to have a, a book of polity, a book of church order, you should be as clear as possible. Um, so that it's just not up to your own interpretation of what some of these clauses and phrases mean. Um, so just some little PCA insider boring baseball yeah. um, for you <laughs> well, all. I think so. But I think that's it's important insider baseball, especially for outsiders to hear about this, because there was we have one of the things that we have in common between our denominations is um, a commitment to the Westminster standards and the Westminster standards uh, in my read of them have a clear understanding of sexuality and marriage uh, and, and gender baked into them. And one of the things that struck me from while watching the PCA, because our, our GAs don't happen concurrently. So we're able to come in the EPC. We're able to kind of watch what's going on in the PCA. Cause we've already. Why would you all want to do that? Why would you want to watch what's going on? <laughs> because it's like our Maybe older cousin. <laughs> and and we're, we're just curious, you know, we're curious how things are going. You because... are a glutton for punishment, brother. Seriously. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, um, but what, th this is the second time that uh, speed, has been brought up in the conversation there was the 2019 response to revoice that was quick and then there were these changes to the overtures that were quick and uh, it was especially surprising to me um in the adoption of the national statement in 2019 and so i wanted to ask about this particularly because we have the westminster standards um for people who don't know the national statement was produced by the council for biblical manhood and womanhood um, which is a parachurch organization that is not affiliated with the PCA in any official way that I'm aware of. Um, and also is heavily Baptist in its representation. So um, why did the PCA feel the need to adopt the Nashville statement before this report, which I think was already kind of in the works a little bit, why the quick adoption of Nashville before the PCA put out their official report? Why, why the, the need to act so quickly when we have the Westminster standards to kind of ground us? So what happened to 2019 General Assembly, sorry, more insider PCA baseball. Sorry, listeners. Um, that's all right. The, if they're, the, if the, they're still the, with the, us at this point, man, the, then they're all the way. Yeah, in. that's right. The motion, the, the, the overture about um, the national statement came Bef uh, before the later overture, which was a vote, should we put together a committee? So, we, so we so technically, even though that was coming up, the whole should we have a committee put together? That came after the debate and vote about the Nashville statements, and um, okay. so that's how that happened. Um, again, just this is my opinion. Jason may have a slightly different take or uh, more nuance to this. Um, I, I do think a lot of it is fear. Like we felt like we had to say something, and um, you know, there's kind of PCA blogs and, um, you know, blog news rings and all these things that kind of put out these, uh, these headlines, these kind of fear mongering headlines that like, oh, is the, you know, is the PCA uh, going to compromise in our sexual ethic? And as my brother said a few minutes ago, like, no, <laughs> there's no evidence of that. And um, even though there's fear like, oh, do we have people calling themselves gay Christian pastors? As I have not yet seen anyone in the PCA call themselves a gay Christian pastor. You know, um, no one's used that phrase. Um, 
And so, so I think, I do think there's a lot of, again, fear and just the feel the need, like we have to say and do something. Um, and again, I'm not saying it's always good or always bad, but I think it's just what it is. And so I think that's what drove that Nashville statement thing in 2019. So. Yeah. I, I mean, because it's, listen, it, I get, you know, there, there are concerns, you know, especially when you see, um, you know, churches kind of, you know, folding, when you see Christians kind of folding on this issue, look, I, I get the concern, right? But I, I do think you're, you're right that, you know, that we really have to be judicious about what, we, what we're going, what's going on as a denomination. Um, you know, are, are we really, you know, is it capitulation or we're just trying to be more pastoral? Um, and so, but, but it's interesting, Marcos, you asked the question about why there's a disconnect. Jason can tell you, I've asked those same questions. Like, why, <laughs> why do we have the language in the report, but then there's, there is this disconnect. And so I'm with you um, on that question. Um, but I will say one of the beauties about this report is that it's, you know, we've had a, we've been talking about same-sex attraction, which is, of course, is a part of it. But this really was the report, as I, I read it, is really to encompass the, the breadth of, you know, of human sexuality, who we are to be as people, right, which fits in what we're doing with this season of family discussion, where we're looking at the doctrine of man. Um, and so one of the beauties of this report, it's not just, oh, how do you wrestle, you know, how do you talk about um, these issues of same-sex attraction, but it's broader than that. It's looking at the image of God. It's looking at marriage. One of our classes, we had a really good discussion on singleness. And are we valuing singles? Do we, you know, do we talk about marriage in a way that, you know, kind of marginalizes single people? And how can we, how can we do better? Um, you know, we had a, another good conversation about friendship right? How, you know, what does, what does friendship, are, are we, you know, are we valuing that aspect of Christian life enough? Um, and so it wasn't just the same sex attraction issue, but it's how, how do we look at who are we, are, who are we to be as people of God, right? In consideration of God's um, God's creation of us and his mandate to us. Um, and so, and, you know, so that was one of the things that I found really, um, really beautiful about the report is that it helps us to have like a really broader look of, of who we are to be. Well, you know, that, that prompts a, a question and maybe a way that we can move towards the end of our episode today. Um, you know, this, this idea of friendship being, um, you know, how do we get over these these major disagreements? I think Daniel said we do it over food and drink. You know, we, we build those relationships. We build friendship. We remember from what Jason said that the sexual ethic of the PCA and, and I'll just say the sexual ethic of the, P, of the EPC, like they're not changing. They're not. They're 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 rock solid. These are we are having conversations about some of the nuances of how we talk about these things well. But when it comes to what is our stance on homosexuality and gender, that's locked in. Um, but. There, there is a concern 
about the way that blogs and podcasts have really driven this conversation. And um, Jason, I, I wonder, especially because of your work with RUF and you, you got a lot of college students who are, um, that's their life. Blogs, podcasts, is where they get a lot of their information. How do denominations like the PCA, like the EPC, and, and it's a little bit of a broader philosophical question, how do we keep the tail from wagging the dog here? How do we keep the, the blogs and the podcasts from determining what is important for denominations to address? How do we keep them from driving the conversation? Instead, have our, the, the councils of the church, our presbyteries and our GA, how do we let them do their work? Understanding that there's always going to be a blogosphere. There's always going to be podcasts. There's always going to be noise. How do we keep that from actually driving the agenda of a denomination? It's a great question, Marco. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great answer. Okay, um, that's fine. <laughs> you know, there's been o more overtures, um, more discussion. Let's say that there's discussion of holding officers, uh, Christian leaders, accountable for their online tone and presence, their words. Um, obviously, scripture is clear that officers in the church, pastors, elders, deacons are not to be people who cause dissent and disrupt the peace of the body. Um, I think that there's plenty of room there for us to be fairly proactive in loving one another and how we call one another to be faithful and loving with our words online. Um, I don't know, though, how you I don't think you can put the cat back in the bag. I mean, every pastor has their sermons online. Um, many of them have blogs. Um, it's part of I mean, if you listen to not to promote another podcast, but the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, you see that online presence was integral um, to the expansion of God's kingdom, you know, and how they were trying to do it. Um, so and I think that there's a version of that that most churches or Christian organizations share in there's that you've got to have an online presence. So I don't know how you can. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, because yeah. Daniel, Meals are always a, a meal. I mean, a meal and a, uh, a shared meal, singing a song together, praying together, having to drink together. That's always better than a zoom call. Facts. Um, <laughs> That's one of the things I one of the things I have tried to do personally is when I find myself being angry or distrustful of a fellow pastor to try to pursue opportunity to have a meal with that person. Um, and I haven't done that perfectly. Um, that's for sure. But it's harder for me to let the caricature of their blog stand strong if we've had a meal. And that probably is prerequisite trust for me to actually speak in and to their life in a loving way. If I feel like their words are creating more death than life. So. Mm. I think it's really good what Jason said. I get, cause I think the best answer is, I don't know how to, <laughs> we don't know how to solve these issues, but um, yeah. So the food and drink thing, um, I'm going to give a, little antidote from my ARP day. So when I was in the Associate Reform Presbyterian denomination, back in the late 2000s, we, the, the ARP had this huge blow up, a lot of division regarding the denominational college and seminary. 
And, um, and I was kind of a part of it and I was kind of on one side of it. And I viewed with disdain guys on the other side. And I thought, Oh, those guys are liberals or compromisers, yada, yada. And then around like 2010, 11 or 12, I started like get to know some of these brothers on the other side and we would get together for drinks or go get Mexican food or talk on the phone. And, um, I was like, all right, they're not liberals. They, they love Jesus. They are very reformed. They are very confessional. Like we just had very different, like tactical disagreements. Right. Um, and so even though like the ARP is a lot smaller than the PCA and a lot more closer together, it's a more, more of a Southeastern denomination. The PCA is more national. Right. But I do seen this. I do think like as more men in the ARP kind of got together, cross party lines, just talked and just got to know each other. I mean, the, 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 the flames died down a lot and it became a much more unified denomination over the next few years. And I, so I, my, my prayer is that that happens for the PCA. Uh, maybe we need to restructure how we do Presbytery and GA schedule so that it is, you know, we do just as much, you know, fellowship and, kind of hobbit activities right let's eat and drink together and sing songs together let's uh let's be hobbits and hang out together just as much as we do all the fun or not so fun presbyterian business stuff and then um the second thing i'll say this is this lisa marcos this maybe the the tangent i go off on that you may want to edit out the episode so here you go um i i i wonder uh if a more chief problem with moral issues with pca leaders and pastors uh, more than sexual issues of sexual sin, I think a much bigger issue are issue are, are things like narcissism and um, basically not being bullies. And uh, I read this past year um, the book by Chuck DeGroat called um, um, uh, Let's see, it's, it's, it's on narcissism, but the whole title is escaping me right now. Uh, when a church or when narcissism comes to church, I think that's the title of it. And uh, DeGroat, uh, he's done um, assessments for like church planters and denominations, things like that. And he's, he's really seen how, what narcissism can look like in a young, especially a young pastor that wants to come in and do ministry. And um, I wonder if maybe in our Presbyteries, maybe we should have um, Christian counselors or psychologists that could kind of uh, look at guys that want to be church planters or go into RUF or, you know, or want to just be plain Jane pastors like me and just be like, you know, do I sense any narcissism in this guy? And if so, like maybe you should slow down on this person. Um, I just think that narcissism and just being, you know, and spiritual abuse and all those things that are being talked about a little more. I think those are just much bigger issues than anything that these overtures are wanting to talk about. And um, I don't know. I don't know what it looks like to kind of focus on those. Um, I know that my shepherding committee that I'm the chair of in my presbytery, we're, we're having discussions about these things. We're trying to figure out how can we focus on these issues with future candidates for ministry um so um not really a solution or an answer but just something i think is really important we got to consider moving forward that i think long term can help our denominational culture and ethos so well listen i i think um that is a is a great observation i think that's something that uh, you know jason you brought up the rise and fall of mars hill i think that this is an issue that we all have to be very aware of it's not just independent guys running off and doing their thing but but this kind of narcissism 
can take root in our denominations as well because it takes root in the human heart. And uh, so we want to be very cautious of, of that. And so I think the official family discussion recommendation for the PCA GA next year is that every single debate has to happen at the Golden Corral. Um, oh, y'all grab dude, a bunch of food. The Golden Corral, really? Gold, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Pick up a bag. Listen, grab grab some food, sit down, and it's really, really hard to yell at each other when you got a waffle in your mouth. It's just the it's a fact. Um listen, we we have been here. Kept you haven't been at Waffle House long. at two o'clock in the morning. Oh man, I'm sure know, he has. Uh, <laughs> hey, I've got, hey waffle, got waffle House is a picture of the gospel because in front of you. They're, they're open on every holiday. They're open 24-7. It's the throne of grace is never ceases to be open to people. So Waffle House yeah. is a true is is a is a type and shadow of the new creation. I'm just gonna put that out there. A preacher, so. a preacher can get anything to the gospel message. That's that's well done, Daniel. Uh, thank you guys for being with us, Daniel Wells, Jason Little. Thanks for joining us. Lisa, any last words uh, before we sign off? We've already been going for almost an hour now. We've got to let our listeners and our guests go. Yes, yes. So, um, I, I, you know, I just want I just want to thank you guys for coming on and, you know, being able to, to talk and be open about the little uh, denominational business, which I think has, it's not just, I mean, we, we say it's for the PCA, but really this has implications for the broader evangelical world, I think, and especially as folks have been looking at what's, um, you know, what's been going on in the PCA. Um, you know, I, I'm just, I, I'm just driven by, uh, I go back to, to Jesus's words, right? Though they will know you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And so my wish is that as you know, we kind of as as our denomination, the offices of our, our denomination continue to work through these issues, that love would drive, right? The biblical love would drive, not fear, not wanting to be on the right side, because I think we're all on the right side, right? As as was mentioned earlier, our sexual ethics are not changing. Um, we're not going the route of the PCUSA, right? And all of it's affirming. We're not doing that. So let let love rule. Amen. Amen. Well, that Thank is- Thank you, Lenny Kravitz. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> that is a wonderful way to end our episode. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Daniel. And thank you, listeners, for being with us today. We will see you again next week for another episode of Family Discussion. Thank you.